I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. Food is fundamental to good health, but what happens when we lose our normal ability to judge what we need? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Eating disorders are far more common than most people realize. There's so much emotion surrounding food and body image that it can be hard to know how to help someone who's having trouble. We're fortunate to have Dr. Cindy Bulick, one of the world's foremost authorities on eating disorders, join us today to help us better understand these serious conditions. What should friends and family do to be supportive? Are there things we should not do or say? Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, Understanding Eating Disorders. In The People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, influenza in the U.S. is following the Australian pattern, early and severe. Only a minority of Americans have been immunized. The flu is widespread across the country now, with hospitalizations four times higher than they would normally be at this time of year. As a result, many hospitals are being overwhelmed. This year's flu season is especially worrisome because we're running out of oseltamivir, also called Tamiflu. This antiviral medication is effective for shortening the duration and intensity of illness, but there's not enough of this prescription medication to treat the people who need it. Pediatricians are feeling the pinch most acutely. Not only is pediatric Tamiflu hard to find, so are some other medicines used to treat youngsters with respiratory infections. Children's Tylenol for lowering fever is hard to find in some places, although pediatric acetaminophen, the generic alternative, may be available. Kids with asthma may need albuterol to open their airways, but it too is in short supply. So is amoxicillin, which is useless against viral diseases, but can be critical if a child develops a secondary bacterial infection. All these shortages point up serious shortcomings in the American drug supply chain. When doctors diagnose type 2 diabetes, they often urge the patient to lose weight by following a low-calorie, low-fat diet. Results of a clinical trial suggest that may not be the best way to improve their health. Restricting calories enough to achieve meaningful weight loss often results in hunger and it's difficult to maintain. To find out whether a diet without caloric restriction could be helpful, Danish researchers recruited 165 adults with type 2 diabetes. They assigned two-thirds of the volunteers to follow a low-carb, high-fat diet without any restriction on calories. The other third was asked to follow a high-carb, low-fat regimen. The dietary intervention lasted six months. The low-carb group got no more than 26% of their calories from carbohydrates, while the high-carb group got 50 to 60% of their calories from carbohydrates and 20 to 30% from fats. Investigators measured HbA1c, serum lipids, and markers such as blood pressure, waist circumference, weight, and insulin resistance. They also assessed the participants for the presence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, a condition for which people with diabetes are at higher risk. Although volunteers had been asked to keep their energy intake the same as before the study, both groups ate fewer calories. The low-carb dieters got about 13% of their calories from carbohydrates, while the high-carb group got 46% of their energy from carbs. Both groups improved their HbA1c while on the diets, with the low-carb group seeing a greater reduction. LDL cholesterol and apolipoprotein B was higher among the low-carb dieters after three and six months. But the low-carb group lost more weight and more inches off their waists. They also had less insulin resistance and better outcomes in measures of liver inflammation. However, once people stopped the study diets and resumed their usual eating patterns, these improvements did not last. Losing weight is hard work, and many people who try get discouraged and give up. 
Healthcare experts wondered if the motivation for weight loss would make a difference. They recruited 668 overweight volunteers from low-income neighborhoods in L.A. and New York City and randomly assigned them to one of three groups. Participants in one group got resources, including free membership in a commercial weight loss program. In the goal-directed group, people could earn money for implementing evidence-based weight loss behaviors. The other group got money based on what percentage of their body weight they lost. After six months, 39% of the volunteers in the goal-directed group and 49% of those in the outcome-based group had lost 5% of their body weight. Both these strategies work better than simply providing resources in these low-income populations. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The holidays can be challenging for all kinds of reasons. Parties and family gatherings often are focused around food and drink. For people with eating disorders, such events can feel dangerous. To help us better understand the challenges for these individuals, we're talking with Dr. Cynthia Bulick. She's a distinguished professor of eating disorders and founding director of the University of North Carolina Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. She's also professor of nutrition at the Gillings School of Global Public Health. In addition, Dr. Bulick is professor in the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, where she directs the Center for Eating Disorders Innovation. Welcome back to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Cindy Bulick. Thanks so much, Terry. It's great to be here. Dr. Bulick, food. It is so fundamental to good health and our sense of well-being. And yet our relationship with food can become problematic. I wonder if you would be kind enough to describe the various kinds of eating disorders that you have been addressing now for, what, decades? Oh, yes, several decades, as a matter of fact. No, I'm happy to. And, you know, there are really four principal eating disorders. There are some new ones on the block that I'll add to my usual list. I think everybody's aware of anorexia nervosa, which is marked by extremely low weight, fear of weight gain, sometimes compulsive exercise. And curiously, sometimes those people will look at their very emaciated bodies and see large people. Um, so they see size where we see starvation. Um, and we don't really understand that. The second eating disorder is bulimia nervosa. And that's when people experience binge eating, which is eating an unusually large amount of food coupled with a sense of loss of control. And then that goes hand in hand with some kind of compensatory behavior or purging, like self-induced vomiting or laxative use, for example. The third eating disorder is binge eating disorder. And that also has those same binges um, defined the same way, but in the absence of those compensatory behaviors. So not the purging, not the compulsive exercise. One of the new kids on the block is ARFID, or Avoidant Restrictive Food Intake Disorder. And this is what you might previously have known as extreme picky eating or selective eating. And importantly, this happens in all age groups, not just in kids, but it does usually appear first in childhood. And one more we've got to add to this list is something that I hope they will change the name in the future. But right now they're calling it atypical anorexia nervosa. And it's basically when someone in a larger body is also starving themselves and can have some of the same nutritional consequences as starvation, even though they're living in a larger body. And that's pretty much the playing field right now. Well, I really appreciate you listing those out for us because they each are distinctive. There was a fascinating article published fairly recently in the New York Times about atypical anorexia in which uh, they follow a patient who has been large from the time she was a child. And the messages that she got 
not only from her family and her classmates, but even from physicians, was, you're big, so you should stop eating so much. And she was, in fact, starving herself. How can that happen? And this is exactly what is at the center and the root of the concern about so many people who have what we're hoping will eventually be called restrictive eating disorder. And one of the reasons that we're hoping that it'll change is in medicine, I don't think it's ever a good thing to be called atypical. It automatically makes people think that it's not as bad as typical. And we want to make it really clear, this is a serious eating disorder. And that, yes, you can be in a larger body and actually be in a starvation state. People can pass out from hunger even if they're very large. And I think the medical field has been missing this forever. And assume, just as you said, Terry, that if someone's large, they're eating too much. And that's not necessarily the case. And in actuality, this woman that you're talking about was probably actually following the directions that her physician gave her by, you know, eating less. But what that ended up doing is it put her in a state of starvation. Exactly right. And Dr. Bulick, there's such an emotional overlay when it comes to eating disorders. And, and the title of the article in the New York Times was, You Don't Look Anorexic. And so people, they have a funny way of relating to friends and family members who may have a, an eating disorder. Because first of all, there's so much stigma and shame and anxiety that surrounds this whole topic. You know, parents may give their children a lot of trouble about being a, a picky eater or even grandparents for that matter. And so this notion of of the emotional component to this process seems like it's often overlooked. H- how should friends, family and health professionals relate to people who have an eating disorder? Yeah, Joe, and I think you've got like three different questions in those comments, and I want to talk to every single one of them. But the one that I'm going to dive right in and talk about is those comments, comments about someone's shape, comments about someone's weight, even if they're, and I'm going to put these in quotation marks, well-intended, because the bottom line is well-intended comments can often be very hurtful. And these sorts of comments about shape and weight or about what you're eating I call them Velcro comments because someone will say them to you and then they just stick. And it's terrible to have all those sort of like nasty, underhanded, sort of side-eyed kind of comments sticking to you because they go right to the soul of your self-esteem, your self-esteem and your body esteem. And, you know, we really want people to just don't comment on other people's weight. And it's not always a compliment to say you look great if you lost weight. That can also be taken wrong. Just tell someone you're happy to see them. Uh, Let's just say you haven't seen them during the whole pandemic and you finally do. Don't comment on their appearance. Comment on how wonderful you feel to see them again. Dr. Bulick, I'm wondering about diagnosis. How difficult are these eating disorders to diagnose? You know, it depends on, in so many ways, the expertise of the clinician and the willingness of the willingness and the comfort and the safety that the patient feels in talking about them. And, you know, if we stick with atypical anorexia for a minute, one of the things that we've found is that a lot of physicians and other clinicians don't even know what to look for or They respond like the title of that article you were talking about in the New York Times, you know, but you don't look anorexic. Um, And what does that do to someone who has a disorder that they feel shameful about? It puts them right back into their shell. And, you know, they're like, I'm not going to talk to that physician about my concerns about eating and weight anymore. So part of it is really trying to find a clinician, you know, a therapist, a physician, a dietitian who get eating disorders and who allow you just to lay it all out on the table, no pun intended, um, but it really is. It's being being able to find a safe place where you can engage in what I call radical honesty and really talk openly about just the pain and the the day-to-day experience that you feel living with your eating disorder. 
Well, I'm wondering how well we do training health professionals about eating disorders. I mean, you head up one of the world's foremost centers. I mean, the University of North Carolina is renowned thanks to your efforts. But I suspect the typical medical student, uh, nursing student, even people who are studying diet, dietitian stuff, I mean, I'm curious, you know, are, are, have we made tremendous advances or are we still have a long way to go? Unfortunately, the word that I would attach to this is abysmal. We do a terrible job teaching about eating disorders. And in fact, sometimes I review curricula in med schools and elsewhere, and they're teaching people things that are 20, 30 years out of date. And that's super dangerous with the eating disorders because we've gone down some real blind alleys in trying to explain these phenomena. And as you both know, a lot of the work that I do actually looks at the genetics underlying eating disorders. And it's so rare that when all sorts of clinicians get taught about eating disorders, that they even mention the genetic component or the biological component. They're still under this false perception that eating disorders are a choice, and they are just as much of a choice as getting asthma is or having type 1 diabetes. These are serious illnesses that unfortunately far too often can be lethal. Well, let's talk a little bit about the consequences. First of all, what are some of the symptoms that might go along with someone who has an eating disorder, especially, and again, to use that rather terrible phrase, atypical anorexia. And, um, and then if it's allowed to persist, how bad can it be? And we only have about a minute before the break. Sure. Um, and I'll keep my answer quick because the bottom line is all of these eating disorders affect every bodily system. So you could have GI problems, you could have circulatory problems. Um, lots of people experience fainting, um, when they're undernourished, their electrolytes can get completely out of whack. They can have cardiac complications. And believe it or not, you can also have dental complications. And that's why we need to teach those folks as well to be able to recognize and refer people with eating disorders that they see in their dental practices. You're listening to Dr. Cindy Bulick, Distinguished Professor of Eating Disorders and Founding Director of the UNC Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. Dr. Bulick is also Professor of Nutrition at the Gillings School of Global Public Health at UNC and Professor in the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. She directs the Center for Eating Disorders Innovation there. She's author of Binge Control and Midlife Eating Disorders. After the break, find out how a friend or family member might pick up on an eating disorder and what they can do to help the person. How does food hoarding fit into this picture? What's the best way to talk with someone about a possible eating disorder? Dr. Bulick shares nine truths about eating disorders. Researchers have really shifted their understanding of these conditions over the last several years. How are they best conceptualized now? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Gaia Herbs. For more than 30 years, Gaia Herbs has nurtured the connection between people and plants to deliver nature's vitality. Their full-spectrum formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial to get in the way. Learn more at GaiaHerbs.com. That's G-A-I-A Herbs.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs, focused on purity, potency, and transparency through its Meet Your Herbs platform, tracing the origin and DNA of each product. More information at Gaia, 
G-A-I-A-Herbs.com. How would you know if someone you love is suffering with an eating disorder? What can you do to help? What should you not say? We are talking with Dr. Cynthia Bulick, Distinguished Professor of Eating Disorders and Founding Director of the University of North Carolina Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. She's also Professor of Nutrition at the Gillings School of Global Public Health. Dr. Bulick is professor in the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, where she directs the Center for Eating Disorders Innovation. In June 2022, she received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Academy for Eating Disorders in recognition of her pioneering contributions to the field. Professor Bulick is the author of several books, including Binge Control, a Compact Recovery Guide, and Midlife Eating Disorders, Your Journey to Recovery. Dr. Bulick, I'm wondering how a family member, a friend, a colleague, even a healthcare provider might begin to suspect that there is an eating disorder in effect here. And, and then what do you do about that? Sure. And so, again, that's going to differ depending on which disorder we're talking about. You know, with anorexia, if someone suddenly won't eat with the family anymore or says they had a big lunch or obviously is starting to lose weight, and often they'll also layer clothes. So you might not even notice that they're losing weight until you get a chance to see them without, you know, four or five layers of clothing on. With bulimia sometimes, and binge eating disorder, sometimes you find that food is missing or you'll find, you know, wrappers in places that you wouldn't suspect them, you know, under car seats, in drawers, beside people's beds, just evidence that something's dysregulated about their eating. Um, in ARFID, you know, in some ways that's the most obvious because a classic example of ARFID is a child who will eat only white food. And this is no matter what sorts of tricks, you know, and we all do tricks and we make silly faces and we stand on our heads to get kids to try new, new foods. You know, these kids are seriously distressed if they get anything aside from their safe food. So that one's sort of very clear. Now, what to do? A lot of people are very hesitant to just come right out and say, hey, I've really got some concerns about your eating behavior. And I know this might be an uncomfortable topic to talk about, but, you know, I'd really like to talk with you about getting an evaluation. Um, and ev an evaluation doesn't commit you to anything, but it puts you in the position where someone in authority, someone who understands these illnesses can cast their eye over you and let you know what type of inter intervention you might need or you might not need. And it's just like it's always good to have a baseline. Um, and that would be the baseline. Do you find that um, that people are usually amenable to such an evaluation? Yes and no. Uh, I think s people are often so afraid either of giving up the eating disorder because it serves a function for them. Um, it might decrease their anxiety. It might help regulate their emotions. But as I mentioned before, they might also really be afraid of being judged um, especially those folks in, you know, who have restrictive eating disorders in larger bodies, they get really hesitant to get any kind of health care because they're afraid of being judged or misunderstood or told they're crazy. And, you know, the bottom line is, if you tell someone or if you just take them by the arm in to get an evaluation, they might get mad. Um, and there are times when that can be really disruptive to the relationship. But if you don't do that, the consequences could be even more dire. It's so important to get people help and to risk um, than being mad at you for a while, because getting an evaluation, getting referred and getting treatment is so important. Well, I remember when we moved Terry's parents from their home that they had lived in for a very long time near Boulder, Colorado, to a retirement community. And we started finding chocolate. Well, when we packed up, we found that my mother had squirreled away chocolate in all kinds of interesting places. Plus, the freezer was totally full of chocolate. Now, you would not look at my mother and imagine 
that she was even interested in chocolate because for many, many years, she was a scrawny person. So, well, we didn't Joe know is, what to we didn't know what to do about it because there was just so much. We didn't candy. do anything about it except we didn't move all that candy. No, we 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 threw it away, and I suspect it came back again after we moved them into their new living quarters. But we were just flabbergasted and basically sort of joked about it, which wasn't very kind of us. But um, as Not Terry in front said, of my mother, she was she was always thin. And um, we never saw her sneaking food, but there were were, were chocolate in drawers, uh, you know, in uh, high up in places that were hard to find. It was it was really kind of stunning in the freezer. There was a lot of chocolate. And um, so what what does what does a good, kind hearted family member do when they discover something like that? And first, I'm going to say that you both just illustrated such an important point, and that is that you can't tell by looking at someone if they have an eating disorder. Exactly right. And, and I mean, that just rang out so loud in that situation. I mean, the first question to do was just ask her, you know, mom, tell me a little bit about all this chocolate and see how she responds. Because I think you're probably right. She probably found, you know, ways to swirl it away in her in her new residence as well. Um, and it never got addressed. I'm not sure if if she's still alive. Um, and that she opportunity is, is still but there. She's she's no longer uh, in charge of her own food. Yeah, so sorry to hear that. Yeah. So the question is, then you, you, you open the, the door, you say, tell me about this. And the person says, well, it's none of your business. Or in my mother's case, perhaps she says, well, I like to have a little taste once in a while. And if I leave it out on the counter, your dad will eat it. Um, I did hear that once or twice. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure. Yep, that's a, that's a great story. And again, it's talking with people about what's the, the most acceptable way to get an inroad to understanding their eating disorder. For some people, they might want to talk to their general practitioner, um, you know, their GP, if they have a good primary care physician. For other people, they might like to talk about a dietitian, And that might be an easier way in for some folks and say, I'm just a little bit worried about your nutrition. Um, I'd really like to set up an appointment to talk with a dietitian so that that person can go over your diet and give us some hints if we need to balance you out in another way. Uh, now, that's a less direct way at going about it. But at the same time, any dietitian worth their salt is going to ask the relevant questions um, about things like that. And you might be in a position, again, depending on who this person is, to give the dietitian a heads up about we're a little concerned about, you know, mom eating pounds of chocolate every week. Can you help us unpack that a little bit? So it takes a little bit of creativity. Um, you should know what you're recommending. So if this is someone you care about, look and see what kind of um, facilities there are around you in terms of dietitians, therapists, eating disorders programs, um, so that when the person either puts up the stop sign or puts up the go sign, you can have it available saying, you know, this is what I think we should sign up for. Um, let's get you let's get you in for an appointment. Dr. Bulick, you and your colleagues have pulled together the nine truths about eating disorders. And I wonder if you could share some of the most important ones, starting with this idea of appearance. You know, oh, you look healthy. Right. But you might be sick underneath that. Yeah, this was this was fun. I gave a talk up at the National Institute of Mental Health uh, probably more than 10 years ago now. And I talked about the nine myths associated with eating disorders. But I also said that I think it's really dangerous to repeat myths because even if they're wrong, people hear them again. And I suggested we turn it all on its head and start talking about the nine truths. And, you know, back to back to your mom, Terry, you know, you cannot tell by what a person looks like if they have an eating disorder. Eating disorders come in all shapes, all sizes, all heights, all colors, all genders, all sexes, um, any stereotypes that you have in your head about eating disorders, you need to erase because they don't care what you look like. They don't care about your race. They don't care about your ethnicity. 
They don't care about your age. There are probably other people um, in assisted living facilities um, who are dealing with eating disorders, some of whom have been dealing with them for 40, 50 years. Mm -hmm. Next, families. Because I think a lot of mental health issues are often blamed on families. What about when it comes to eating disorders? Simple. Families do not cause eating disorders, and they can be our best allies in treatment. In fact, the one evidence-based treatment that we have for the treatment of anorexia nervosa in youth is family-based treatment, and that is bringing the whole family in. Um, and the parents or the caregivers basically take over responsibility for feeding that child completely in the first phase of treatment. And then gradually control is given back to the child. But, you know, most of the time when families come in from, for treatment, they are desperate. They are at the end of their rope. They've tried everything. And they've probably been blamed by someone for this eating disorder. And so, you know, way in the past when people said, oh, these parents are crazy and that causes the eating disorder, they completely missed the boat. It's that the eating disorder drove these parents to seem desperate. In actuality, you know, the main thing that they were supposed to do for their child, you know, we have one job as parents in the beginning, and that's to feed our children. And when that relationship gets interrupted, it is so disruptive. It's just like an earthquake to your psyche, because that's what you want to be able to do to show your love to your child and to keep them alive. Now, you have another truth that talks about an eating disorder is not a choice. Please tell us more about that. If you talk to anyone who has had an eating disorder and you say, would you recommend this to someone else? They would say, good Lord, no, there is no way. No one would ever choose to have this illness. And this really stems from all the work we've done that has shown that there is a strong genetic component to anorexia nervosa, to bulimia nervosa, to binge eating disorder. And we have a new paper coming out now that shows that ARFID is even more heritable than the other ones. Remind us again what ARFID is. Yeah, ARFID is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder. That's the extreme selective eating. Thanks. Yeah, sure. So you can't say that something that is that biologically driven is a choice. Um, are there choices involved in recovery? Absolutely just like there are choices in getting well from any illness. You choose whether to take your medicine or not. In eating disorders, you choose whether to eat your food or not. But to say that someone goes into these illnesses saying, I want to become anorexic or I want to develop binge eating disorder and lose control over my eating, that is just a myth that has to be dispelled. I'm so fascinated by the genetic component, but also the meta, what I'll call the metabolic component. I developed Graves' disease a couple of years ago, uh, hyperthyroidism, after getting a big dose of iodine for uh, in a CT scan. And um, within several weeks, all of a sudden, I was just losing weight. It was the first time in my life I was like, wow, isn't this great? I can eat anything. I want to have more ice cream. And the next day, I'll be down a pound, a pound and a half, two pounds. And uh, all of a sudden, I Not was like, so great. Oh, no. my hands no. are shaking. Yeah. My blood pressure is way up. My heart rate is high. Oh, your thyroid gland is out of yeah. whack. But there are yeah. some people, a lot of people who have hypothyroidism and no matter how careful they are about what they eat, they still gain weight. Sure. So yeah. it's not just your genes, although your genes are incredibly important in this in this field, but also there are some metabolic conditions and even perhaps some medications that people take that can mess up their metabolism. Sure. I'm going to stick with the with the metabolism first. And believe it or not, I'm going to loop it back into genes because this was our big discovery um, within the past couple of years. So we did a very large genome-wide association study, which is basically when you compare the whole genome of a large group of people, and in our case, it was almost 17,000 people with anorexia nervosa, uh, to about 50,000 people without an eating disorder. 
and it allows you to identify where there are differences in the genome. And that also allows you to do some correlations and figure out, you know, what's the underlying genetic profile of this illness? And we all expected that we would discover sort of a psychiatric genetic profile, that it would share some genetic factors with other psychiatric disorders like depression and anxiety. What we didn't expect was the large, strong genetic correlations with other metabolic factors in the opposite direction. So the same genes that increase your risk of developing anorexia, for example, decrease your risk of developing obesity decrease your risk of developing type 2 diabetes. So we concluded, and this was the title of our paper, that anorexia nervosa should be reconceptualized as a metabopsychiatric illness because its underlying genetics, its underlying biology is both psychiatric and metabolic. That's quite a shift from the way that anorexia nervosa, for example, or binge eating have been conceptualized in the past? It is a seismic shift, Terry. And the good thing about it, I think, is that opens up a whole new area of work that we can do to figure out how can we treat this illness. We're terrible, frankly, at treating anorexia nervosa. We have no FDA-approved medications. In fact, we have no medications that work well in anorexia at all. And I think it's because we've just been focusing on the psychiatric part for so long and neglecting this whole other area that that makes us be able to answer questions like, how can they actually lose that much weight in the first place? How can they live for that long at such a low weight without dying? There's something metabolically different about these people that predisposes them to develop anorexia nervosa. You are listening to Dr. Cindy Bulick, Distinguished Professor of Eating Disorders and Founding Director of the UNC Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. Dr. Bulick is also Professor of Nutrition at the Gillings School of Global Public Health at UNC and Professor in the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden. She directs the Center for Eating Disorders Innovation there. The International Academy for Eating Disorders awarded her its Lifetime Achievement Award in June 2022. Dr. Bulick is author of Binge Control, A Compact Recovery Guide, and Midlife Eating Disorders, Your Journey to Recovery. After the break, find out more about the genetic components that might make people more vulnerable to eating disorders. How do different cultures affect people's perceptions of eating disorders? Full recovery is possible. How can we support those who are struggling? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, offering its cardio health product with 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols in powder and capsule form. More information at cocovia.com. 
And by Gaia Herbs, their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. There are many myths and misconceptions about eating disorders. Society has focused on appearances, and that can lead to trouble for vulnerable individuals. What should you not say to someone who may be struggling? How can you support them best? It's important to remember that, though these conditions are challenging, recovery is possible. We are talking with one of the world's foremost authorities. Dr. Cynthia Bulick is Distinguished Professor of Eating Disorders and Founding Director of the University of North Carolina's Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. She's also Professor of Nutrition at the Gilling School of Global Public Health. Dr. Bulick is Professor in the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, where she directs the Center for Eating Disorders Innovation. In June 2022, she received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Academy for Eating Disorders in recognition of her pioneering contributions to the field. Professor Bulick is the author of several books, including Binge Control, A Compact Recovery Guide, and Midlife Eating Disorders, Your Journey to Recovery. Dr. Bulick, it's fascinating to learn that there's such a strong genetic component and that it's metabolic uh, for some of these eating disorders. Very often when people learn that there's a genetic component to a problem that they are facing, they may decide that there's nothing they can do about it. I trust that's not actually the case with eating disorders, or is it? No, not the case at all. In fact, here's how I try to explain this. I think everybody's probably played cards in their life. And when we say there's a genetic component, we don't mean that genes are the only thing that cause eating disorders. In fact, I say that there are four buckets of four buckets of stuff that influence your risk for developing an eating disorder. Let's just say that spades, you know, you're playing cards, you're looking at your hand, your spades represent your genetic risk factors. Um, and you might be dealt a couple of those at birth. But then you also have to look at your clubs. And let's say that your clubs actually represent genetic buffering factors or genes that protect you against developing eating disorders. And we don't know anything about those yet, but they're, we know they're out there. But then there are the environmental factors. So we can call the diamonds the environmental risk factors. And that can be like bullying or teasing or going on a diet or being made fun of for your weight um, or being in a sport or a profession that you know values leanness. But then there are also environmental buffers, and I call those the hearts. And, you know, that can be, you know, a family that really focuses on who you are rather than how you look or a partner who loves you just the way you are or being involved in a sport that praises strength and speed rather than thinness. And anyone's risk is their unique hand, the hand that they're dealt, you know, the, the spades and the clubs that they're dealt at conception when the sperm and the egg meet. But then all the addition of those environmental risk factors and environmental buffer factors. We can't do anything about the genes yet. Um, and we might never be able to, depending on where this field goes. And our job in therapy and our job in parents is really to try to minimize those environmental risk factors, the diamonds, and maximize the hearts in your hand. So simply saying it's genetic um, and I'm not going to do anything about it, ignores three out of those four suits um, because it's not the case at all. It's only part of your risk for developing the illness. Well, let's talk about one of those risks that can occur from a variety of sources, and that's trauma. Because there are all sorts of traumas. There's physical trauma. There's emotional trauma. And I'm wondering how trauma can impact anorexia, bulimia, binge eating, and then how a good therapist can take trauma into account in the healing process. Yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, one of the things that we found in several studies 
is that, of course, a history of trauma of any type is elevated in people with all sorts of eating disorders, but also all sorts of psychiatric disorders. There's nothing about eating disorders per se that means that their level of trauma in their backgrounds is any higher than any other psychiatric disorder. In fact, there are actually some studies out there that show that adverse childhood events are less frequent in people with anorexia nervosa. But when it comes to trauma, the epidemiological data are less important than the person who's walking into your office. Um, because like, we can quote statistics forever, but if someone comes into your office with both trauma and bulimia, you really have to look and understand how those two things are related and how you have to layer your treatment as well. You know, not necessarily sequentially, you know, like do work on trauma first and then work on the eating disorder, but you have to be mindful of the independent impact of each of them as well as their impact on each other. You know, and for some people, you know, we found that their eating disorder emerged. This is a study in Sweden that I heard about this morning. Their eating disorder emerged in the same year that they underwent a trauma. And those folks seem to be at greater risk for actually developing post-traumatic stress disorder when they're linked that way. So it's very important, again, when someone comes into your office as a clinician, that you don't just see the eating disorder walk into the room. You see the person walk into the room with all of the things that often sort of like come together with or attach to their eating disorder, depression, anxiety, trauma, substance use disorder, comorbidity is really the norm rather than the exception when it comes to eating disorders. Dr. Bulick, you just mentioned Sweden, and I know that you have a position at the Karolinska Institute. You have worked in Sweden. Can you tell us how different cultures affect people's perception of eating disorders? Yeah, that's a super interesting question, and there are so many different cultures. It's hard to, it's hard to answer that question specifically. But yes, I mean, interestingly, in Sweden, one of the things that I found is people are so much more open talking about their history of an eating disorder. You know, I find people would come and apply for a job and simply say, oh, I've had an eating disorder. I would really like to work on this. And I think that's part of being in Sweden when every time you go to a doctor, that visit becomes part of the National Patient Register. And I can do research on all of those visits because I have access to those registers. And it's this sense of global good that somehow my experience is going to help other people not have to go through this in the way that I did. I remember I was hospitalized in Sweden for a, a weird event, and suddenly I was in the neurological register. And I was so excited because I was like, yes, I'm contributing to the greater good, and I'm going to help people understand this problem so other people don't have to go through with this. So I think that's one of the big differences that I saw between, between Sweden and the United States. I mean, it's great for research because we learn so much about health and the population that way. But, you know, in some countries, you know, in part of this has to do with economic factors and where you have to put your priorities when you have limited economic resources. And they're really focused much more right now just on bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and depression. And then we're waiting and there needs to be more resources to get to the other disorders. And we find that there are so many people throughout Latin America um, in some other Asian countries who have eating disorders who want to study them, but their resources simply aren't there. And so we know so much less about them than we do in countries like the United States and most of Europe. Dr. Bulick, you've talked a lot about the genetics and how much research you've done. That That is really your specialty. But, but I'm wondering how things in our lives, trauma, for example, can affect our genes. Because we, we usually, a lot of people go, well, you, you're just born with your genes and you can't do anything about it. And it's good, bad, or indifferent. But sometimes things happen in our lives that can affect how our genes express themselves. Can you give us a little insight into that, especially when it comes to eating disorders? Sure. So you're talking about the phenomenon of epigenetics. And, you know, that's the question where colloquially you would talk about your genes turning on or turning off. And sometimes we do have genes that are sort of dormant um, until they get perturbed in some way by the environment. 
we do not have a lot of information about epigenetics and eating disorders at this point yet. But one of the things that we're really interested in is the impact of dieting on gene expression. That's exactly what I wanted to ask you about, actually. I remember so many years ago, again, this story involves my mother, but as a reporter rather than uh, a participant, she told me that she was working for a doctor at that point in time. And she told me that the doctor was seeing a young woman with anorexia whose anorexia had been triggered when her family encouraged her to go on a diet and use at lose just a few pounds. Yep. Is that plausible that uh, such an experience then would tip someone over into an eating disorder like anorexia? Absolutely. That's my theory in a nutshell. So what we think is that, you know, so many young people go on diets. These are any sex, right? And for most people, it lasts a couple days. They hate it. They go back to normal eating. For a small group of people who are potentially genetically predisposed to binge eating, that diet can be the thing that triggers them to have their first binge episode. Their body wants to make up for that deprivation and they overshoot their satiety mechanism. But for that smaller number of people, that diet might be the thing that triggers their metabolic component to anorexia nervosa. And what we've seen clinically but haven't verified with epigenetic data yet is that a small group of people claim that dieting actually reduces their anxiety. So with most of us, it makes us more, you know, you, you miss lunch and you start getting more irritable and hangry. But they say that if they diet, it actually calms them. And that, we think, is one of the lures or potentially one of the epigenetic triggers for people who are genetically prone to anorexia nervosa. It's that diet being in negative energy balance. So expending more than you're taking in is the trigger. Um, for anorexia nervosa. Dr. Bulick, we've been talking about things like anorexia and bulimia. And one of the things that we haven't talked about is obesity. And I think a lot of our listeners say, well, okay, I, I understand that there are these eating disorders, but but they haven't been talking about the big gorilla, literally and figuratively, in the room and that is the overweight problem in America. And we have a culture that worships thinness in terms of fashion and style. And I suspect that for tens of millions of Americans, that overweight, judgmental nature of our society is just so overwhelming, so depressing, so challenging. How does that fit into the eating disorder situation? Sure. So as one of the truths said, um, eating disorders can happen at any size. You know, I think one of these myths that we have to bust is that everybody with an eating disorder is thin. Um, for binge eating disorder, it goes across the weight spectrum and it actually goes more toward larger bodied individuals. We talked about atypical anorexia occurring in people who are living in larger bodies. But technically, obesity is not considered to be an eating disorder, explicitly not considered to be an eating disorder. Are there people who have obesity who also have eating disorders? Absolutely. But from our perspective, it's really important to get their eating behavior under control before talking about anything related to weight regulation. And I think that's where we've run into so much problems in primary care. If someone who is in a larger body and does have binge eating goes in to see their primary care physician and the first thing they say is go on a diet. Well, guess what? It was that diet um, and being told by their physician that probably triggered their binge eating disorder in the first place. So you have to find yourself a physician who will work with you to get your eating disorder treated and not just constantly say, you got to go on a diet. You got to go on a diet because you can improve a lot of your health parameters just by getting your eating under control and getting your weight stabilized. 
And that leads us to the very last question, and that is, how do people find health professionals who can assist them with their eating disorders? You've already mentioned that our training could be improved rather substantially and that you have a long waiting list at your center, and I suspect most other centers like yours uh, have long waiting lists. So where do you go? Where does somebody, you know, a family member or the individual, him or herself, go to find help? Yeah, I'm not going to give you a sunshiny answer to this one because we do not have enough facilities in this country to treat eating disorders, um, full stop. But what can you do in the meantime? Two resources, the National Eating Disorders Association, um, NIDA by any other name, but also here at UNC, we are the host to the National Center of Excellence for Eating Disorder. It is the only National Center of Excellence for Eating Disorder run by Dr. Christine Pete, who was a former trainee here at SEED. And up on the NSEED website, there are tons of resources uh, for clinicians. You know, we're trying to train primary care physicians how to treat this better. And again, you can go to the NIDA website, the National Eating Disorder Association website, to look for facilities in your area. We would recommend that you, when you look for a place to get treatment, that you ask questions. Ask questions about, do they deliver evidence-based care? Um, who are the therapists? Who are you getting treatment from? Um, and really see if you can get some clear information about the type of treatment that they do and who it is that delivers the care. Dr. Bulick, one of the truths that you and your colleagues have, um, have described is full recovery is possible. And I'd like to delve a little deeper into both the diagnosis and especially the treatment. In other words, at your center, you know, what do you do when someone walks in the door with a problem, whatever that eating disorder may be? Uh, correct diagnosis and proper treatment. And I suspect it's going to be different for each person. Absolutely correct. And for each disorder. Um, and these disorders also aren't mutually exclusive. So if you look at someone over time, they might start with anorexia nervosa and then transition to bulimia or to binge eating disorder later on. So that's one of the things that you need to do in order to do a proper diagnosis is you need to go backwards in time as well and figure out whether that person has suffered from another eating disorder prior to them showing up in your, in your office. So that's really the first step to characterize their current eating disorder and contextualize it historically with which eating disorders, if any, they had before that. And then the second step of good diagnosis goes back to what we were talking about with trauma, and that's to really understand everything else that it comes packaged with, um, if it comes packaged with anxiety, depression, substance use disorder. And then once you have all of that information coupled with their age, then you can start making decisions about what treatment might be best. So as I mentioned before, family-based treatment is the evidence-based treatment of choice for children with anorexia, also evidence for children with bulimia, um, and is also being applied to ARFID. Um, if the person is an adult, and you know, this is something we developed here at UNC, we developed a couple-based treatment for anorexia, bulimia, and binge eating disorder. We said, okay, so if we're using the family to help kids recover, why do adults have to do it on their own? So we developed this whole suite of treatments where we bring the partner in for the whole treatment, not just for a couple sessions, but they're in there every single day um, and working with their partner toward recovery. And we found that once again, leveraging the power of the family really helps recovery. So you do have evidence on that. We do have evidence on that. And not only... I mean, sometimes it's tough for the patients because they really have to be accountable, not just to their therapist, but to their partner. But the partners love it because forever they've wanted to help, but they don't know what to do. And they feel like they're walking on eggshells. They're worried they might say the wrong thing and do the wrong thing and make things worse. But now we give them a playbook and we make them part of the recovery process. And they love it. Well, that brings up family and friends. 
because I think a lot of people are afraid that they're going to say or do something that's the wrong thing. And you've already described the fact that that people often do do the wrong thing. So how can family and friends do the right thing? And, And that's, I think, especially true now that we're kind of maybe hopefully coming out of the pandemic. I, I'm guessing that the pandemic had an impact on eating disorders. So yes. what do we do going forward? Yeah, no, the pandemic was, it. we had mushroomed, eating disorders mushroomed all over the globe. It was an incredibly, incredibly long waiting lists right now, unfortunately. But family and friends, they need to stick with you. And we did a study once that asked people with eating disorders who had recovered, what was the what was the main factor in your recovery? And it boiled down to people who cared with them and stuck with them through thick or thin. And recovery from eating disorders is not linear. I think a lot of people are under the false impression that you start getting better, then you get a little bit better, and then you get a lot better, and then you're done. It's more like a roller coaster going up and down and hopefully gradually continuing um, up that big hill. But there are setbacks. It is a nonlinear process. And it's really helpful to have someone understand that and stick with you along the path while continuing to encourage you in the direction of recovery. Just standing back and saying whatever isn't particularly helpful either. You know, we have some data to show that it's sort of like firm compassion but knowing that you're there for them no matter what. Well, that sounds like it could play a really helpful role. Definitely. And, you know, I think any time for pretty much anything, having a partner and a companion, you know, not necessarily a romantic partner, but just someone to be there with you through thick and thin can make the burden feel a little bit less heavy. And what not to do, what not to say, because I suspect people put their foot in their mouth routinely, unintentionally, but um, really, you know, oh, you look so beautiful. You're so thin now. Oh, how great. And it's like, that's not helpful. That's not helpful at all, but nor is the other. So someone with severe anorexia nervosa goes into the hospital, they get re-nourished, they gain weight that they need to gain. And someone says, you look so healthy now. That is not what the person with anorexia hears. What the person with anorexia hears is you look fat. So this goes back to the very first thing we talked about. Mm -hmm. Just tell them how great it is to see them. Tell them congratulations on, you know, the latest work that they did in school or at work, whatever. Just don't talk about appearances. There's so much more to us than what we look like. Let's focus on that. Dr. Bulick. That certainly sounds like great advice. And I'm wondering if you have further advice for all of our listeners. What do we do to support those people in our lives who perhaps have an eating disorder? I would encourage everyone to remember, to really remember, and to acknowledge that these are not choices. Eating disorders are serious illnesses. Anorexia now we know is a metabopsychiatric illness. And please approach people with an eating disorder just like you would approach a family member or a friend who had any other serious medical illness. Help them get the help that they need and stick with them and support them through the recovery. Dr. Cindy Bulick, thank you so much for talking with us on The People's Pharmacy today. It was great to be here again with you. You've been listening to Dr. Cynthia Bulick. She's a distinguished professor of eating disorders and founding director of the University of North Carolina Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders. She's also professor of nutrition at the Gilling School of Global Public Health. In addition, Dr. Bulick is professor in the Department of Medical Epidemiology and Biostatistics at the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm, Sweden, where she directs the Center for Eating Disorders Innovation. In June 2022, she received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the International Academy for Eating Disorders in recognition of her pioneering contributions to the field. Her books include Binge Control, 
A Compact Recovery Guide, and Midlife Eating Disorders, Your Journey to Recovery. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. And by Gaia Herbs. Their formulas are designed to provide an herb's complete array of beneficial compounds with nothing artificial. Connecting people, plants, and planet to create healing. More information at Gaia, G-A-I-A, herbs.com. Today's show is number 1,324. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. That's where you can share your comments to let us know what you think about today's show. You can also email us, radio at peoplespharmacy.com. Our interviews are available through your favorite podcast provider. You'll find the show on our website on Monday morning. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about important health stories. By subscribing to the newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.